vote of confidence. Okay, so as we get started this morning, I just need to feel a little bit better about myself, so I need your help. How many, how many of you, by a show of hands, have ever wanted to actually physically smack somebody? Whew. I was feeling really unqualified to be up here this morning, and you've all made me feel a lot better. Um, so I, I, I am not a particularly violent person. I don't feel the urge to hit often. Um, but I am a particularly mouthy person. And so I like verbally assaulting more than I should. Um, you're all feeling very confident in my ability to be up here right now. Um, there's just something that's a little bit argumentative and confrontational in my nature. And so when conflict comes up, I can feel like my adrenaline start pumping and I want to engage. And so something that I feel like God has been sanctifying in me over the course of my life, and we haven't gotten very far, unfortunately. Um, but this last weekend, uh, I feel like he really put that process of sanctification to the test. And so... Um, I live in a small apartment complex, and there are six units, and it's really strange. The upstairs, the way that the layout is, is I think it used to be one big apartment, and they divided it in two, and so there's like this makeshift wall that's kind of a door, and so our dining room, um, on the other side of our dining room is another apartment's bedroom, and so my roommate and I, we've been there for about four and a half years, and a couple of people have come and gone. Well, we have some new neighbors. They've been there about six months. And we both work from home a lot, and so we're up and we're talking and chit-chatting in the dining room, and they don't like it for some reason. They're trying to sleep, and so they're always pounding on the wall, and we're always like, oh my gosh, and it's like 10.30 in the morning on a Tuesday, and they're pounding on the wall. Well, we've just laughed it off and been like, get earplugs, get a white noise machine, you know, it's an apartment, get a better job and buy a house where you don't share a wall. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and so... So uh, this last weekend, uh, I was leaving, and I opened the front door, and there's a letter stuck in my front door. And I'm like, what's this? And it says, to the girls in apartment six. And I'm like, who is this from? <laughs> well, I open up an eight-page eight handwritten letter asking us if we could please do them a favor and not be so loud between the hours that they are sleeping, which is 6 a.m. to noon. <laughs> in what world can your neighbor ask you to not talk until noon on a weekday? So everything in me that if I wasn't a pastor, I should have been a lawyer is like, I am ready to go. I'm like writing a dissertation to them on all the reasons why you have no right to ask me to not talk in my own apartment until noon on a weekday. I feel like you guys are not properly outraged here. <laughs> it's insanity. And I wanted to bring the letter for like an object lesson, but I thought the point is not to make them feel dumb. The point is not to show you all how ridiculous they are, although they are ridiculous. The point, they, you know what, this is a side note. They're artists, and so they get inspired in the nighttime. I'm like, get a job. Anyways, grace and love. I have no business being up here today. Um, so my first instinct is to rip it apart sentence by sentence and map out all the reasons why this letter is actually the most insane thing I've ever seen. Um, my first instinct as a follower of Jesus was not to read it and think, oh, they are frustrated with us. How, how are we going to love them better in this? It didn't even cross my mind. 
It didn't even cross my mind. My first instinct was to retaliate. My first instinct is to rip it apart and tell them all the reasons that I am right and I am justified and they are wrong and they are insane. Eight pages insane. So my first response is, do we start talking louder? Do we start pounding on the wall back? Do we write a letter or do we go over there and knock on the door and do what I want to do and tell them verbally all of the reasons why they're crazy? I could feel my own self-righteousness coursing through my veins as sure as my blood does. It was so natural. I didn't have to convince myself to feel this way. I didn't have to talk myself into it. The natural response to this for me was retaliation, right? Has anyone here ever felt like that? Where you can feel it, like you can actually physically feel it pumping through your, through your blood. Some of you are much better people than me, and you are calm and mild-mannered, and you just don't get upset that easy. And I want to be like you, but I am not like you. If you've been wronged or hurt or betrayed, as natural as the blood pumping through your veins, you can feel that desire to retaliate, to strike back, to give them what they're asking for, right? Almost immediately. So we've been going through, this is going to relate to the Bible, I promise, even though you don't trust me at all with the ability to discern scripture at this point. But we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for the last few months, and in this series of teaching from Jesus, he's illustrating to the hearers and now us readers what the kingdom of heaven is like. So last week, Kenny preached on retaliation, the section right before today's passage, talking about retaliation. And Jesus here is urging his followers not to retaliate even when they have been wronged. And so let's, let's jump before our, our passage this morning and look at um, Matthew 5, verse 38. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 5. We'll have the verses on the screen in case you can't flip that quickly. Or if you're just lazy, there's, there's freedom here to be you. Um, so verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So in this passage, the previous one, the one we're going to talk about today, Jesus is saying, don't retaliate. Don't fight back. Don't, don't give someone what, what they deserve. Treat people better than they deserve. Think the best of people. He's telling them what not to do. In the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to add to that. He's going to say, don't just, don't just not retaliate, but instead proactively love people. And so we're going to look at verse 43 to 48 today. Jesus says, you have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun on the e rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We're going to unpack that a bit this morning, but I want to point out that, that Jesus is here saying, don't retaliate, but then he takes it a step further. So for me, when I'm dealing with my neighbor, it's funny because I was going to be preaching on this this week, and I'm thinking, love your neighbor, love your enemy, and my neighbor right now is also my enemy, and so it's very timely for me. But the point is, is that I, my first thought is I want to get back at them. But being a follower of Jesus, I think I can't obviously do that. I'm not obviously not going to start pounding on the walls. I'm not going to go over and rip them apart. 
If that doesn't feel obvious to you, I promise, I didn't, I didn't actually want to do that. But it didn't go further than that. I didn't think, how can I now love them? It just stopped at neutrality. I need to feel neutral. Do you understand? Don't, don't retaliate, but just be neutral. Jesus is pushing it a step further here and is saying, don't just be neutral. Actively love them. This is the final, this passage is the final, um, what they call the antithesis, where Jesus is saying, you've heard this said. You've heard this said from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've heard this said from the religious leaders. You've heard this said from your culture. But this is wrong, and I'm going to correct it a bit. And so, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus, um, he's not here changing the Torah, but he's addressing changes and additions that the Jewish leaders have made. So we've all heard that in the Old Testament it says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, they had begun to add to this, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so Jesus is going to address the changes that they've made. He comes in saying, you've heard this being said, but here's the thing. This isn't right. What you've, been heard, what you've heard being said is not right. So Jesus is going to clarify what the Torah, the law, and the prophets were really saying. And it's very straightforward, and it's very simple, and we make it very complicated. The centrality of Jesus' message throughout the Bible is love. That is the central point of everything that Jesus teaches. It fleshes out in different ways. It hits us in different ways. It requires different things of us in order to do that well. But the centrality of his message is love. The law exists to help us love God and love others. The prophets existed because God loves people so much that he wanted to help them understand better how to love God and love others. It all existed because of love and for the sake of love. We see, as, as the gospel will continue, if we know how it ends with Jesus dying and raising again, we see that centrality of love in Jesus' message being carried all the way to the cross. He talks about what this love looks like, and then he does it on the cross. This love that goes over, above, and beyond what is asked for. And so in Jesus' teaching, both in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the Gospels, we see that the central message is the availability of the kingdom to everybody. Jesus shows up and says, this is for everybody. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the righteous people. It's for everybody. Anyone who would accept the love of God, and that by accepting that love, we're adopted into his family. We're called his children, and he changes us to be more like him. We are transformed to have that family likeness. We're going to learn this morning that broken people are transformed into kingdom people by love. Broken people are transformed into kingdom people by love. That's what transforms us. Through love and for the sake of love, to make the love of God known to others. And throughout this series, this has been a, we've been talking about kingdom people for this whole year. Our, our series is on kingdom people, and there are different sub-series sub in between. And the one that we're in right now is called Inside Out, because we're learning that kingdom people, broken people are transformed into kingdom people from the inside out, not from the law. We've already learned that the law is not sufficient, right? Following the rules, doing the right thing just because they're the right thing and that's what we're supposed to do, that's not sufficient. All that does is make us whitewashed tombs, right? We look good on the outside doing the right things, but inside we're just still a mess. What Jesus keeps saying is, you've heard it said, do all of these things. What I'm saying is that it, it's more than that. It's about what's going on in our heart. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about why we do what we do. And so it's not through trying harder or behavior modification, but through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, our new nature as kingdom people is manifested through obedience and love. I'm going to say that again. As we're transformed by the Holy Spirit, our new nature as kingdom people, the fact, the reality that we are kingdom people when we are grafted into God's family, that is manifested not by us being like, now I'm going to try harder to be a kingdom person, 
but through obedience to Jesus and love of God and love of others. Naturally, it follows that kingdom people love in a way that's different, right? Jesus is talking about here, and he's saying, yeah, what good is it to love those who love you? There's something different that Jesus is talking about in the way that we love. Jesus has been clarifying the way of the kingdom and teaching how kingdom people are to live and love differently. Later in the gospel in Matthew 22, I think we have it on the screen, Jesus is having a conversation with um, the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are just law-obsessed, and they're always trying to trap him and catch him. And he's always responding brilliantly and blowing their expectations wide open. And so they try to trap him here, and they say in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in all, in all the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus here responds, the greatest commandment is twofold. And he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, the Israelites would have known this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So he responds in their language. This is the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. Then he adds to it a passage from Leviticus 18, uh, 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he adds these together and he says, here's the thing. Love God is the most important. This is the greatest commandment. The one that tags along with it, if you love God, you love what God loves, and that's people. And so love God and you will love people, and this encompasses everything else. Because if we really love God and we really love people, the rest of the stuff will flow naturally, right? That's the idea. We can't seem to get that right, but that's the idea. And so as Jesus says this, love God and love others, if you are a Jew, your mentality is thinking, okay, so Leviticus 19.18 says, I am to love my neighbor. I am to love the people of Israel. It's in a context where they would think this means the people of Israel. This means my fellow patriots. This means my fellow brothers and sisters that are in, grafted into this, this people of Israel. So if I am only to love my neighbor, then that means I don't have to love anybody else. It's an exclusive type of love. And so they've taken this, even though later in Leviticus it says to love the stranger and the sojourner, they've taken this and said, okay, it's about Israel, it's about our family, and so we're going to love each other and forgive each other, and we're going to work on this little nucleus, and anybody who's outside of this is outside of who we have to love. Do you understand? Is that making sense? And so this is the mentality. Love your neighbor. Anybody else, you don't have to love them. So if you're, if you're a Jew in the time that Jesus is speaking, love your Jewish people, love the people in your synagogue, love your family. But the Romans, you do not have to love them. In fact, you should hate them. You should hate your enemy. So Jesus here is, takes it a step further. Don't just love your neighbor. Love the person that you think is your enemy. This is an undiscriminating love. This is brand new, revelatory type of love. This isn't easy love. This is hard love. Love that says you love undiscriminately. You love not based on who's in your family or who's easy to love. You love everybody. Matthew, um, in the first two verses of our passage today, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
So continuing the upside down, countercultural way of the kingdom, Jesus presents what appears to be an oxymoron. Love your enemy. An enemy by definition is not love. An enemy by definition is not someone that you love. So what is Jesus talking about? If you're hearing this and you're a Jewish person, you're like, that doesn't even make sense. We've become so, f- so familiar to this kind of language that we forget that that actually doesn't make sense. Love your enemy. An enemy by nature is not somebody that you love. But he says love. He doesn't say tolerate. He doesn't say try really hard to feel neutral about this person. He uses love. That is a strong word that requires action. How can this be? So we might have heard this a bunch of times and think, yes, of course. You might be sitting here and thinking, yes, of course, we must love our enemies. That's what Jesus would do. And you're feeling all noble, like, I got this. And I've been so nice to that one guy at work who's mean. And you think that you've got this. And in theory, it sounds good. Love our enemies. Let's just try harder to love our enemies. But when we flesh this out, if you have someone in your mind right now, that is hard to do, right? It is hard to do. It's hard to do because it is unnatural in our flesh. It does not come natural to us. It's countercultural to the world that we live in. We live in a world where when we tell somebody about something that someone did to us, we don't typically get a response back of, you know how you might love them better? People are like, no, she didn't. You know what you need to do is you need to write a nine-page letter. (laughs) The rules here are different. The values here on earth are different. The expectations are different. And so Jesus is going to start redefining some things for us. For those of us that are in the kingdom, who have pledged allegiance to the kingdom of God, who have have given our hearts over to Christ, he's going to start redefining things because the words and the language and the values that we use here on earth, they don't work when we're talking about the kingdom. It's upside down, it's backwards, it's countercultural. So he has to start redefining some things for us. And so the first point in your notes, 20 minutes later, we're in the notes, guys. We made it. And my blood has stopped boiling. Don't worry. In the kingdom of God, neighbor and enemy are redefined. Neighbor and enemy are redefined. So if you're Jewish and you're thinking, so who do I need to love? My neighbor. It it stops at my neighbor. I need to love my neighbor. Okay, well, that's really restrictive sense of love, right? It only has to be whatever these people are that I think are my neighbor. And they would have really restricted that. So that means if I need to love my neighbor, I don't need to love my enemy. Well, so then that begs the question, who is our neighbor? Who's our neighbor, right? Jesus, if you're aware of a story in Luke, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Most of us, even if we're unchurched, we kind of know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Basically, um, someone gets up to Jesus and starts questioning him again, and he says, what shall I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this guy answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He gets the answer right. Then Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then the guy responds and says, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells this story. I don't have it on the screen. So I'm going to tell it to you. So just try really hard to focus without the words on the screen. Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among, among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, another Jew, when he came to the place, he saw him 
and pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, if you don't know, Samaritan, enemy of the Jew, enemy of the Jew, the worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The priest, the Levite, or this dirty, rotten Samaritan? The man answers, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. So Jesus is redefining what it looks like to be a neighbor. It doesn't now look like a fellow Israelite. It doesn't look like someone in our family, someone that it's easy to love, somebody that looks and, and acts and in all of the ways that align with us that we can identify ourselves with. Now it looks like, well, what about the one, the one Samaritan who looked at this guy who was in need and had compassion and decided that he was his neighbor? Jesus is redefining who is a neighbor as any fellow human being. Any fellow human being. So if a neighbor becomes any fellow human being, an enemy now becomes your neighbor. In the kingdom of God, your enemy now becomes your neighbor. Because if the qualification for neighbor is any fellow human being, enemies fall in that category, right? How do enemies become neighbors? Well, we see it in the story of the Good Samaritan. What happens? How did the man, the Jew on the ground, become a neighbor to the Samaritan? Through love. The Samaritan showed love, showed mercy, showed compassion. And in that moment, the hero of the story is the dirty, rotten Samaritan who treated the Jew like he was loved, like he was a neighbor. And so in the kingdom of God, enemies can become our neighbors through love. And so we love our enemies. They might not practically become our friend or our neighbor. There might, not be some, there might not be something that we can think of to do to befriend them. Some people just hate us. Or you just hate some people. Sometimes you can't do anything. I can think of certain situations in my life where I think there was nothing I could actively do to make that person be my friend or make them feel loved by me. I can't plan a strategy. I want to strategize and plan and figure out how do I check all the boxes to now I'm going to make that person my friend. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. But that's not the point. The point is never a formula. The point is never trying to figure out the magic trick to turn an enemy into a friend, into a neighbor. The point is always our heart. What Jesus is always doing is getting back to our heart. Always. Every time and everything he says He's saying, yeah, these things, they're good for you to do, and these things are good for you to stay away from, but because of your heart, because what I care about is your heart. And so the point isn't to figure out a strategy to make our enemies into friends. I'm not going to go over and walk up to my neighbor's house and tell her, you're going to be my friend, and I'm going to love you until you're my friend. That's not going to work well. Also, I'm just not there yet. (laughs) I still have the letter, and I'm holding on to it. He cares about our hearts and transforming them. We're going to, in the next section, we're going to flesh out what loving our neighbors looks like. But the point here is that in the kingdom of God, when we love with a love like Christ, enemies become neighbors. Not because they have changed, but because we have changed. If we wait around and wait for our enemies to change and stop being whatever it is that makes us be at, 
at enmity with them, we're going to be waiting a long time sometimes. The point is not that, they, that we uh, treat them differently because now they've changed. The point is that we treat them differently because we have been changed by the love of Christ. When we understand and acknowledge our own brokenness, we can understand and acknowledge the brokenness of others. If we don't think that we are in need of grace, we're not going to bestow grace on people very easily. If we forget that people are people and they're just as broken and messed up as we are, we're going to hold them to an expectation that we ourselves can't meet, that no one can meet. And so acknowledging brokenness allows for grace. When we remember that this person who is doing whatever they are doing that is so awful, when we acknowledge, man, that person is broken, just like I'm broken, and that person needs grace, just like I need grace, they stop being villainized, right? We stop demonizing people, and we realize that we're all just a mess, and we're all broken and in need of grace and in need of saving. Kenny mentioned last week, one of his points last week, was that hurt people hurt people, right? We, most of us have heard that. Hurt people hurt people. I've had a couple situations in my life that I can think back on and was so hurt by someone, and then I found out a bit of their story and realized, man, they're going through a lot. Or, man, I could totally see how if I had gone through what they went through, I might be the same way. But in our flesh, in our knee-jerk reaction, we forget that people are broken people. And so we stopped having grace. When we stop seeing people as the enemy, our hearts and our head and our eyes are cleared up to see who the real enemy is. People are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. Your coworker is not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your mother-in-law is not the enemy. That mean kid in your class is not the enemy. Muslims and Republicans and Democrats and Donald Trump and even ISIS is not the enemy. What the world's values want to do is to, to cultivate anger and fear and retaliation in our hearts. And what the Holy Spirit is trying to do is to keep us soft so that our hearts might break for hurt people that are hurting people. And the more we allow ourselves to get calloused and jaded and hardened, the less likely we are to be able to see people as people and not as the enemy. And the more capable we are of seeing who the enemy actually is and how we actually fight back and retaliate against the enemy, which is through prayer, through righteous living, through obedience to God. So in the kingdom of God, neighbor becomes more inclusive and enemy becomes more exclusive. And it's streamlined to the real enemy. Point number two, in the kingdom of God, love is redefined. Love is redefined. Loving our neighbor or loving our enemy isn't a piece of pragmatic wisdom. We shouldn't walk out of here and think, oh, now I must practice to love my enemy more. It's not something to do. It's instead a reflection of the character of God himself. Loving our enemies is a reflection of the character of God himself. What is the character of God? Well, love gets redefined. When we start trying to love like God, love is redefined as a universal love for all humans. God has a universal love for all humans. For all humans. Jesus says in, in verse 44 and 45, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son 
rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God extends what theologians call common grace to everybody. People that don't know Jesus, they experience love and sunshine and joy. There are some things that are common grace that God gives to people, all people because he loves them. Even the worst of people, God extends grace on, and Jesus went to the cross for. Because God's love is universal and for all humans. Jesus says, verse 46 and 47, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So it no longer looks like the natural love we have for our family and the people that we like. Now it goes beyond that into the people that we don't like, the people that hurt us, the people who disappoint us, the people who destroy us. Looks like God's universal love for all humans. So Jesus uses this example of the, of the tax collectors and the Gentiles because those are the people that the Jews would have thought at the bottom of the moral totem pole. So doing the absolute bare minimum to be like a decently functioning human, maybe it's what the, what the Gentiles and the tax collectors would do. And he says, they already love the people who love them. They already love their own families and the people that are one of them. So if that's what we think it looks like to be people of the kingdom and to love how Jesus loves, we're falling super short. Because even the people at the bottom of the moral totem pole, they do that, right? And so Jesus is saying there's something different. There's something extra here that the people of the kingdom are called to do. In verse 40, 47, he says, what more are you doing than the others? If we were to look back at verse 20, if you remember several weeks ago, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. And we get caught up on like, what does it look like to exceed the righteousness of these people that were supposed to be super righteous? This word exceeds is the same word that he uses in verse 47. What more are you doing than others? It's a word, it's, it's a Greek word called parasuo, and it means to exceed in abundance, over and above, extra, plus. So Jesus is talking about this thing that is more than, exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, exceeds what they are doing. It's more than what the Gentiles and the tax collectors are doing. There is something different about this love. It's different. It's different in the sense that it's more than is expected. It's more than what is natural. It's not just loving people that are nice to us. It's more than what comes natural to us. It's extra, it's more than, it's this over and above, this beyond the regular way of loving. This kind of love is a love that prays for the very people that were nailing Jesus to the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, he prays. While they are still crucifying him, while he is still hanging there, and they're still spitting, and they're still mocking. The type of love that Jesus has for his enemies is the love that's hanging on a cross and looks at them and asks God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Because he looks at people, and he knows who the real enemy is. And the people aren't the enemy. He looks at the people, and he sees that hurt people hurt people. And that people are broken and in need of grace, and that they're not the enemy. So God, would you forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing? Gosh, what if the people of God treated people like that? That kind of love enables us to turn the other cheek. Not trying harder to turn the other cheek, but because we're like, you're hurt and you're broken. And my heart breaks for you. This kind of love is a love that looks at enemies and sees neighbors who are broken and hurting and who hurt others in their brokenness. 
And so love gets redefined to the love of the Father, and that kind of love is the love that allows enemies to become neighbors, neighbors that we pray for regardless whether or not they deserve it. And so the mark of a follower of Jesus is not just love. It's a strange, a different, and extra love that is poured out on all humans alike without prejudice and without strings attached. How many of you feel like you're capable of giving this kind of love? Don't raise your hand because you're wrong. This kind of love requires transformation from the inside out. This is not something that we go home and we try harder. I can't go home and and think of a list of things to do for my neighbors that will make them feel loved. There might be some practical outworking of that, but what I need to do first and foremost is ask God to change my heart. Because otherwise I'm just doing stuff. The point here is not to love your enemies. I know that's what I've been saying, but that's not the point. The point isn't to love your enemies. The point is to become like the Father. And as we become like the Father, we begin to be able to love our enemies. Enemy love is not a magic formula. It's not a trick. It's a posture, a heart posture toward every human being that we meet. The application here is not to try to manufacture better emotions towards someone or to do something that looks loving, but rather to engage with God in the changing of the attitude of our hearts. Prayer changes our hearts and enables us to love our enemies. Because in prayer, we're humble. In prayer, we're sitting before our good and holy and perfect God, and we're reminded that we're not that good and perfect and holy ourselves. And so it ends with Matthew 5:48, a really light and fluffy verse that makes us all feel really good. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's your application. You're all free to go. In the kingdom of God, good news is perfection is redefined. Perfection is redefined. We can invite the worship team back up. As God transforms us from the inside out, we are made more complete and more whole and more perfect like our Father. Not through striving to be perfect, but through striving to be more like our Father. And that looks like being fleshed out in certain practical ways, but what it looks like first and foremost, primarily always, is being humble before God. Because perfection is not moral flawlessness. This word that's used in this passage, be perfect, therefore you must be perfect, it's not a word that's talking about moral flawlessness. We hear perfect and think moral flawlessness, right? Like, be perfect. Okay, well, if you're a perfectionist at all, this verse, like, kills you. Because you're like, i got to be more perfect. i got to get more perfect. I messed up again. I'm less perfect. I'm still not perfect. It's suffocating. Point is not moral flawlessness. The point is not to do everything right or to not get it wrong. Because the goal of walking with Jesus is not perfection but sanctification. Ultimately, sanctification, fully worked out, leads to perfection. And so the ultimate goal, yes, is perfection, but through sanctification, not through trying harder to be perfect. Does that make sense? Perfection is becoming more like the Father. This word perfection, in other contexts in the New Testament, it means maturity. It's a, it's a process. It's, it's not a one-and-done verb. It's a process verb. You English teachers can't know what kind of verbiage I'm talking about, but it's the one that keeps going right? 
perfection is becoming more like the Father. And so kingdom people are being changed. They're being changed by the perfect love of God and by extending that same love to others. Kingdom people are being changed by the perfect love of God and by extending that love to others. This is how we are to live as kingdom people. There is more than, extra, over and above, beyond the regular kind of love that is required of us. Not by trying harder, but by tethering ourselves to the Father, constantly being reminded in prayer and in in the word and in fellowship of the kind of love that God has for us. Being humble and remembering that we are broken people and that hurt people hurt people. Propels us to extend grace to each other. This is how we live as kingdom people. This is how the world is going to see the love of God because the world doesn't see the love of God just by us loving our families well. Is it important that you love your families well? Yes, absolutely. Go buy your wife flowers today, please. That's, that's not the only way because even people that don't love Jesus can do that. It is the over, the extra, the above that is the defining marker of kingdom people, the kind of love that is unwarranted and undeserved The kind of love where people from the outside look and say, how could you possibly be praying for God's blessing on that person? Because they're just broken people. By praying for the very people who hurt us, and by praying for them in a way that seeks their best interest, God begins to unfold his kingdom here on earth. Praying for our enemies isn't just an effort to get over some bad feelings, but to petition God on their behalf. It's not just praying, God, God, change my heart and help me not, not hate this person. But God, would you bless them? Would you bless them by them knowing who you are? To petition God on their behalf. This isn't natural, it's a challenge. It's the way of the kingdom. It's radical and it's upside down. And so this takes more strength and heart capacity, heart capacity than we naturally have. And so we need the supernatural. We need God to endow us with strength and to make space in our hearts through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. We need to be changed from the inside out. Because we're not trying to be better, we're trying to be more like the Father, who loved us and gave himself for us while we were still sinners, right? And so we're going to go into a time of worship now. Tyler, you can hit the lights. We're going to have some people over here to pray for you if you need prayer.